Well, fantasy football is a big part of my life now. Um, it wasn't and, uh, until recently. And so I didn't know anything about football, uh, really. I, I thought, like, when somebody said, hey, do you want to do fantasy football a couple years ago? I was like, oh, is Joe Montana still good to pick up? And I didn't know who was still playing. I didn't know what was going on. And, and so, um, but being here, living here, has really helped me see uh, how big football is and how big sports are. I'm a college basketball guy myself, but now I watch NFL and I watch college football. Uh, I didn't before I moved here. And so part of it's been culture change. Like I think uh, some of our guys are starting to experience that right now. Our other elder, Scott, he was an App State grad. And our, our worship leader was also an App State grad. And if you didn't notice when he was leading worship this morning, morning he was wearing a purple shirt. So I don't know if he's already been converted in just the short time that he's been here, but uh, praise God for that. And so um, I, um, we're baptizing him next week. It's awesome. But um, just kidding. Um, but what I've seen in my own life is, I mean, I've had, to, I've had to, in order to adapt, I have to keep up with football and stuff like that. So I, I did the fantasy football deal um, a couple years ago, and now I'm, I'm starting to geek it up a little bit with fantasy football. I mean, fantasy football is like a cult. I don't know if you know that or not, but they have like blogs and websites dedicated to it, and it'll help you to build your roster and to know who's coming up, and don't pick this guy. He has a felony. This guy has a broken leg. Don't get him. And, and so I didn't know any better the first time I did it, and I picked some of the worst players that you could possibly get, and I still won the thing, um, and I brag about that still to this day. Uh, my, everybody was making fun of me. You obviously, you would never have picked him if you knew anything, blah, 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 and I won. Um, but now, um, now that I geek it out a little bit, and I, now what I do is I, I look ahead, I look at rosters, I look at, man, this guy had a good preseason, uh, this guy hasn't punched his coach, you know, he's going to be a good pickup. And so now I, I start to build my team based on, man, the stats, and man, this guy ran this many yards, and now he's traded. And I love stats, by the way, and, I, and so it's, it's, it's a fun little mix for me. And now I go home after preaching. I go and watch this particular player, and I'm hoping, man, he, you know, he gets receptions because I'm, he's on my team, and I'm playing Steven that week, and I really want to beat Steven. And so I've got, you know, I'm staying with it a little bit more. And one of the things that you don't want to do is pick a player who's going to be trouble or inconsistent. You don't want to pick Randy Moss. You don't ever want to do, if he's still, I mean, I hope he's gone. Please be gone. Um, and so, um, but you don't want to do that. You want to pick somebody who's good and consistent, and so that's the way we are, though, with everything else in our lives. Uh, for me, you know, when we pick friends, we do the same thing. Uh, we want friends that are not going to be high maintenance. We want friends that maybe have a lot of money, maybe have a lot of popularity, more attractive, funnier, that will actually give you a little bit of glory and get a little bit of fame and recognition. And that's, that's what we do with friends. That's what we do with stuff, too. We pick innovative stuff, the fastest, the, 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 most, the fanciest, the, uh, the, the most... Uh, uh, high quality. That's, that's how we kind of roll in our, in our lives. And so it's very interesting. That's how we are. Um, we want the fastest, the best, the smartest, the, the brightest, the most attractive. That's how we are about everything. It's very interesting, though, that Jesus Christ is not like that. Uh, Jesus Christ is not like us. And so it's, what we see here in this passage is Jesus is engaging in his disciples. His disciples have been walking with him for all of, these, all of these years, these three years that he's been in ministry, he picks his disciples, and they have been faithful to him. They've seen him do multiple miracles, multiple incredible things, and he, they're still walking with him. But when he picks his disciples, he does not pick them in the way that we would do fantasy football. He's not going after the top picks. He actually goes to the bottom of the barrel. 
What you would typically see with a rabbi, for instance, if a rabbi was, had disciples that he was training, what he would do with a rabbi is this. A rabbi had to be the cream of the crop. A, 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 a trainee would have to be a cream of the crop for a rabbi. He would only pick the best and the brightest. And so a rabbi, if he was to, to have a disciple, he would say, okay, this guy has to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. He has got to know the law inside and out. He has had to live this devoted life to obey the Ten Commandments. And this is the kind of guys that we want. Now, if the guy would go through the process that a rabbi would put him in, the assessment that a rabbi would put him through, and he didn't pass, what, he, what, he, what would he do? He would do his father's trade. So he would end up being a fisherman. He would end up being a carpenter. He would end up having a job that would not be impressive. So if Jesus is chasing down tax collectors, fishermen, and these simple life guys, these everyday guys, what does that tell you about the nature in which Christ chooses us? It shows that these guys, man, they're not the most impressive people. And it would be like if we were to do a fantasy football draft, he'd put the very bottom players, the ones with the broken legs and all the felonies. Hope we get a winning season this year. Got the wide receiver with one leg, right? It's not going to be a great year. But this is what Jesus does when he picks his disciples, the bottom of the barrel. And it's very interesting here in this passage, what you see is these bottom-of-the-barrel guys are now with Jesus at this table. One of the most historic moments in all of Scripture is the Last Supper. And they're here at the Last Supper, and Jesus is handing out all of the elements of, the Last Supper, of, of this Supper. And he's telling them, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. And these disciples then, they know one of these 12 is going to betray Jesus, me. And it's very interesting what takes place because just like anything else, they begin to debate and argue about which one actually is the greatest. Can you sense the irony there? I mean, here are guys that, sh- that should not be asked to do anything like Jesus is asking them to do. You are going to follow me, the one the, the God of the universe who came in flesh, the one who's going to die for the sins of those who believe in him. And this is what is happening. He's, they're sitting around the table and they're asking, who is the greatest among us? And so look at what the passage says in verse 24. Luke 22, verse 24, it says this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, Jesus Christ comes in human, uh, God comes in human form, tells the disciples that he is the true and better Passover, that he would be the one who would take on the sins of the world, that God's wrath would be placed on Christ for our sins. He says that. Then he says, from now and on, when you take the bread and you take the cup, it's going to represent what I'm about to go through on the cross, die Um, bleed for your sins and resurrect. And the disciples hear this and you have this historic, tranquil moment. I mean, you've seen pictures all around, uh, even here in eastern North Carolina. You can go somewhere and see pictures of the Lord's Supper. It's this beautiful palace-looking thing and, man, it's like this long table and they just look like they're all just chill, right? They take this tranquil, beautiful moment where Jesus is telling this really rich, amazing truth And then the disciples turn.
turn it into Chuck E. Cheese. They began to fight and banter among one another, and it becomes a my dad is bigger than your dad kind of talk. Which one of us is the greatest? Are you serious? Do you not realize what you have been saved from? Do you not realize what Jesus Christ has done for you? Do you not remember what Jesus said in John 15 when he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Do you not remember that Jesus Christ is the one who sought after you and rescued you and saved you and elected you? This is a beautiful thing. Uh, this is what Jesus is actually describing is what we would call the doctrine of election. People always freak out and say, well, I don't want to believe in election because I believe, but the people that I know believe in election are cocky. Why would you be cocky if you believe in the doctrine of election? Because what it actually is, is this. Scripture tells you your position. It says that you're a foreigner. It says that you're a stranger. It says that you're an alien. It actually says you're dead. Then it says Jesus Christ reaches down and he saves you and redeems you in spite of who you are. He calls you his child. Unbelievable. The God of the universe reaches down, calls you a dead person, makes you alive, breathes life into you, calls you his child, one of his own, and he saves you. That's pretty good news, right? I mean, I'll take that. I'm dead, can't do anything on my own. Jesus Christ comes and saves me. I'll take that, right? Are you guys awake in here? Are you hearing what I'm saying? I mean, that's a big deal, right? You're dead, you're now alive. So you should, you should be dead forever, but now you have life. That's good news, right? Good news. And so what Jesus is doing here is he saves these disciples in this way. He says, follow me. He takes them out of where they were and he makes them to do something Pretty awesome. Peter and John, pillars of the early church. What you see here in Scripture is a constant reminder of this truth. I mean, Colossians 2, 13 through 14, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling our record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He, nailed, he, he set it aside, nailing it. To the cross. Scripture also says, Ephesians 2, 1, it says, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Here's what that means. You're dead. Jesus Christ is the only person who can make you alive. You're dead. And so, if you want the good news of Ephesians, uh, read the rest of Ephesians because it constantly shows us how Jesus, in his goodness, is the one who saves us and redeems us. And so what the disciples are not seeing and remembering is this truth that the only reason why I'm even at this table is because Jesus Christ has allowed me and he's, he's brought me to this table by his saving work. And so look at what Jesus says to them next in this argument, in this dispute that they're in. Look at this, verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you, rather, let the greatest among you Become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Now, this is a great statement that Jesus is making because he's like, listen, you guys are acting so worldly. No person of any authority even acts like you guys. By the way, when you pull out a coin out of your pocket and you see the face of the person who's in charge of you, guys like he would say Augustus or Tiberius, you see these leaders here who are over the the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations, and he would say, listen, those clowns don't even act like you guys. You guys are so arrogant. 
arrogant that you think that you need some type of right or some type of authority to act in this way by even arguing and debating who's the greatest. And it's very interesting to me. He uses the word benefactors, which means you guys are acting like your kings. You guys are acting like your heroes. You guys are acting like your God. He's saying, no, this is not it. Credentials are the way that the world works, but it's not the way the disciples work. And he says this, but not so with you, you become as the youngest. And you wonder what that means. It actually means the least. Uh, the old, in the Old Testament, if you were younger, you had less honor. The older you got, the more honor you gained. And I don't know about you, but I, I struggle with this because mainly I'm 33 and I look like I'm 17 still. Uh, I have the beard, so it ages me by about six or seven years, and that helps me out a little bit. But really, man, I look really young. My wife, and she's five foot on a good day. Um, she's as sweet as she can be. But man, when, when, when we got pregnant, it was, you know, married and pregnant, people thought like we were some kind of 16-year-old couple, and they're like looking at us like, oh, yep, I wonder if he's going to stick around, you know, and kind of looking at us mean. I mean, just the other day, I mean, just the other day, my wife and I went on a date Friday night. We're up, up front, and the, the maitre d' is asking us, you know, uh, uh, do you guys have a reservation? No, we don't have a reservation. He says, well, um, I guess you'll just have to sit and wait at the bar then. Help yourself to an adult drink if you are old enough to have one. And man, I, my ginger, like I, I got, and I was like, mm, you know, I'm old enough to have one, you know, like I've been old enough to give, you know, like, you know, so I just sat there and pouted, you know, with my head on the bar, you know, like a drunk guy, you know, angry at the, you know. I was like, man, I'll show him, you know, and so but there's a part of that that's true of, man, if you are at the least, if you're at the bottom, if you are treated as the youngest, it's, it is a little bit humiliating, is it not? Somebody says, oh, you know, I'm so proud of you, and they squeeze your cheeks, and you just graduated, you know, grad school, and it's just something about, like, the, you know, it's, it's not really, it's pretty humbling. And so, and so um, Jesus is saying this, my disciples are acting like they're the youngest. They take the place of the low Honor. Now, this is, what Jesus, this is why Jesus says that. Look in verse 27. He says, for, those who are, uh, for, those, for, for who is the greater one reclines at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table. Is it, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am, am among you as the one who serves. Now, I want you to see this because this is important. People always say, Jesus lived this life, but he never actually proclaimed to be God. If Jesus never proclaimed to be God, he is one arrogant fool here in this passage. He's like, I'm the greatest. That's pretty arrogant if he's not God. He's saying that because he's God, okay? That's why he's the greatest, because he's God. But he's also displaying something even more, that he's, he's the greatest, but he also is humble. Christ came to serve us. Christ was, even though he's a leader over us, he still comes to serve. In this way, he does this because Jesus is reclining at a table of men who are broken and fallen and have no hope without him. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, becomes man in the flesh. That's the most humbling place to become like us. Even, even John describes it, John 10, he, he, John 13 rather, he tells this story in, the, in, in, a, in a similar way that Luke, but he adds to it and explains even more what happens at this table. Jesus Christ the God-man, God in the flesh, takes off his cloak and he begins to wash the feet of all of the disciples. 
Now, I know we struggle with foot washing because we've been to maybe Christian youth camp and we've seen it done really poorly. The hot worship guys trying to get the girl's attention by saying, look how humble I am, right? You know, it's like a, it kind of loses its flavor. But let me just tell you like what happens here in this passage and what this actually kind of shows us in, in John uh, 13 when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples at this table. People didn't have 90 pairs of shoes then, all right? Let me just say that. I know some of you ladies, like, that just blows your mind, but they didn't have, like, a different type of shoe for every season or every week, okay? And so here, they would have maybe no pair or maybe one pair of shoes. And and so what this meant was, and they didn't have hybrid cars then either, okay? So that means if they wanted to travel somewhere, they're going to be walking, and they're going to be walking through dung and mud. Their feet are going to get scratched up and bloody and nasty and stink. I mean, the nastiest place on a person's body in this culture was their feet. And so when Jesus, man, he, you know, he goes after this, this deal because he's showing the most humblest position is to wash this person's feet. The, the only modern day example I could give you would be like, listen, I want to I show you how much I want to serve you. I'm going to go to the great lengths. I'm going to go and clean your nasty toilet. That's, what is, that's what's really happening. He's going to the nastiest place and showing this great humility to these disciples. So in some way, he's showing a man his service to them, but it's also kind of a rebuke slash encouragement. This is the standard that Christ sets for us and how we serve. It's the standard that Christ sets for us for how we are to be humble. But look at what he does next. Verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, talking to his disciples, and I assign to you, as the Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Know this. He's not talking about the preservation of Israel here. He's not talking about that. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's actually showing us. He's talking about how the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that Jesus Christ saves and redeems, he's saying that we will have the opportunity to judge those who have rejected Christ. As a matter of fact, if anything, the Israelites rejected Christ consistently. You would see it in John three, uh, Luke 3, 7, when John the baptizer is baptizing. And he looks at the uh, Israelites and he says, You brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come. He, he tells this, Jesus says this to the Israelites. He says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? In Luke 19, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. He is going to see the Israelites face to face, face to face, face, and they see him coming and they start singing praise songs. And just like how I, when I hear often praise songs here and uh, today, I cry. That's what Jesus did. Not in a good way, a sad way. Jesus cries when he hears their praise songs. He hates their songs because he sees their heart. Their heart's wicked. Their heart is not submitted to him. So he weeps. He weeps. (laughs) And what happens is this. Jesus is saying, these people are unbelievers, and you, Gentiles, those who've been saved and redeemed by the cross of Christ, will have the opportunity to judge those who do not believe. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we get to sit up in heaven and gloat over people dying and going to hell. does not mean that. 
I grew up in, in a real legalistic youth group, and I remember um, youth pastor getting up and talking about John Lennon, talking about the, the song Imagine. Imagine all the people, right? He's doing that, and he's like, he's like, man, he said, imagine there's no, you know, there's no heaven. He says, it's pretty easy if you try. Well, right now, he's in hell, and everybody's like, amen. And I'm like, amen to he's in hell? Like, I don't think you get the gospel. There's no way that we gloat over anyone in hell. No way. So he's not saying we're going to gloat and we're going to show, yeah, that's what you deserve. You're getting what you need, right? He's not saying that. Actually, he's saying we get to see and witness and be a part of, look, Jesus Christ died and saved me. He did not save these people. And so what it is for us is a sobering, listen, sobering reminder for us that one day we will see this judgment that will be across the land of multiple people who think they're saved and they're not and they're going to go to hell. And what that is, is this, it's to remind us to be humble when we approach people who are not believers. That's what it is. It's to remind us and show us, listen, this is their heaven, this earth. For a non-believer, heaven, this earth is their heaven. For a believer, this earth is my hell. So I'm not going to be all about my position, my rank, my credentials while I'm here. I'm going to be humble and serve, and I'm going to wash feet, which means I'm going to do all that I can to show the love of Christ to these people so that they would see the goodness of the saving faith that Christ only can give us. And so, man, this is a humbling thing, is it not? It's pretty sobering to think, man, one day we're going to see what this actually looks like. We're going to see the wrath of God being poured out. And this picture is to be a reminder for us of how we are to serve others. And so, I think this is a hard point for a lot of you here. I I look at this church, and I I think, man, we have a lot of sharp people. We have people that are going through grad school. We have undergrads. We have people that already have their careers, already have it all figured out, doing well in this world. And the problem, the tension that you'll find is that you might get power. You might have possessions. You may get money. I mean, I'm telling you, if we could... If, if our giving could reflect your future incomes in this room, I mean, we could plant thousands of churches, all right? I mean, by the way, still give after you do that. I'm just throwing that in. Um, but seriously, what we typically see in the hearts of people are, is this saying of, man, now I have this power in the world. So you come to the church, and then you're like, that's tough, because what Pastor Ben's saying, and what Pastor Scott's saying, and what Integrity's saying is, the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. So that means all of us in this room here, your credentials and the status and your position and your power, it doesn't matter. Yes, that's what the cross does. It levels us out and it says, sinners saved by grace, all the same. Everybody. Everybody. There's no rank here. I'm the pastor, yes, but I'm also under Jesus. So none of us have a rank. It's all equal. It's all equal. I mean, that's hard. Is that not hard? If you experience, you're a boss in the workplace, and you come here and you're saying, no, we're, we're all equal here. That's tough, is it not? It's tough. And so, man, you look at this. When I first moved here, I, I experienced this right off, right out of the gate. I, I preached my heart out at this one church. This college student comes up to me and says, listen, that was a pretty good sermon. I'm like, uh-oh, right? Here's what I would have done differently. 
I'm like, dude, you're 12 years old. Like, have you ever even preached a sermon in your life? But no, man, he's taking some um, speech classes, and he wanted to give me some pointers. Thank you. Right, take a hike, right? You know, like, point him out, like, bam, you know? And I mean, that's, that's the arrogance that you see often. I mean, not, man, a college girl came into my wife and I. Sweet gal. She said, I've been taking some parenting classes, and here's some advice I would give you. Wait a minute, stop, right? You're not married, you don't have kids, right? You can read books about riding bikes all day long, but until you actually ride one, you cannot train people how to ride bikes, right? And I'm like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here, right? What is happening? Like, okay, so what this looks like is, man, what God actually gives you, the the credentials that he gives you are credentials that he gives you, which means that you don't brag in those credentials, the job that he gets you is a job that he gave you. It's not, it's not for you to brag and boast in. The degree that you get is not the degree that you get. It's the degree that God gave you. So we don't walk in, in this bravado of, man, I've got this all figured out. And Jesus is saying this. The heart of a disciple is one who uses the resources that God gives them, and he uses this so that he could serve him more and make much of him more. The heart of the disciple is Humility, that's their brand. That's what he's saying. This is what it looks like. And so look at what Jesus says further about the disciples. Verse 31. It says, Simon said, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that you may, your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to them, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, I I won't get into this too much because we'll actually cover a lot of this next week in the the following passage. But here's what Peter is thinking. He's, He's thinking, I can handle this. I can go with Jesus even to the cross. I'm willing. But what Jesus says, no. You don't understand what you're saying. Look at what he says further. 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? He said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has been fulfilled. And they said to him, and they said, look, Lord, here are the swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, here's what happens in earlier in Luke. When Jesus uh, gathers his disciples and he sends them out on mission, he tells them to travel light. He tells them, listen, if you have two knapsacks, get rid of them. Get rid of one, just only carry one. I will provide everything else for you. If you have two cloaks, get rid of one, just carry one. I will provide everything for you. And now he's telling them, listen, sell some of that so that you can get a sword. That's weird. And what he's saying is this. You are about to face great danger by following me. And you need to be able to protect yourself by what's about to take place. Take a sword with you. And he's telling them this. You're about to be hated in the worst way for my name's sake. Now, this is challenging because what he's saying is this, embrace your humiliation because you're gonna, it's going to happen. It's going to take place. And so I look at 
what he's telling his disciples to do and what Jesus actually models is something even more in the next passage. We're going to hit this, and I'll explain a little bit how this all ties together at the end. Look at this, verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And he rose from prayer, and he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He mentions temptation twice. He talks about how, listen, you guys be alert, be awake, pray that you won't fall into temptation. He's saying this, the humiliation that you want to escape, pray that you don't escape it. Pray that you embrace what's about to happen, that, that he's going to die and humiliation is going to be the worst it's ever been. And then what happens is Jesus, it says that he knelt and prayed. This is not the way a typical Jew would pray. A typical Jew would pray standing up, looking to heaven. And now Jesus, because of the burden of sin that is about to be weighed on him, because God's wrath was about to be placed on his one and only son on the cross, it now burdens him so much that he's brought to a low point and he's looking, facing the ground, kneeling down. And it says that, He prays in this way. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. From the birth of Jesus, he knew early on that the cross is coming. He knew the agony that he would have to face. And this cup, actually, the Jewish language for the phrase this cup is actually God's wrath being placed on him. God, if there's any way that you can remove your wrath from me, let it be so. People always say the worst part about the cross is the pain that he went through. That is a horrible thing, absolutely. But the worst part, really, of the cross is Jesus Christ experiencing the full-blown wrath of God. He lived a perfect, sinless life, but he was experiencing the full-blown wrath of God. Your sins, my sins, were placed on Christ. He's saying, is there any way to remove this from me? I love that he says, if you are willing, but he says, not my will, meaning this. What the Father's will is matters to me more than anything else. If this is the Father's will for me to go to the, I will obey him to the point of death, even death on the cross. It says that he faced agony. It says that he sweat. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Some scholars actually believe that his capillaries burst because of the stress and the agony that Jesus Christ was about to face. And so I love what Luke does. It's because he takes us to one of the most humble, humiliating states that we see Jesus Christ in, one of the most vulnerable places of crying out to God, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way? But, I, but your will be done. Is there not a more humbling state than we see God in the flesh? So, What he does is we see this position that Christ is in and we compare and contrast it to the state of the disciples who are arguing 
Moments later, who's the greatest? We see who the greatest is because we see who the most humble person is. So Jesus did this so that me and you, aliens, foreigners, strangers, dead, could be made alive and could be called his children. And what, what drives me crazy about this and where my struggle is even in this is that the moments that I forget what Christ has done for me are the moments that I become prideful and arrogant and I start to think I'm the greatest. And I forget where I came from. And I really believe here in this moment, the disciples forgot where they came from when they're arguing who is the greatest. The disciples didn't see this picture of what Christ was about to do, and they didn't grab the weight of what Christ did on the cross. And any moment we forget what Christ did for us and what we've been saved from is when we fall into these patterns of pride. And man, I don't want that for us. I don't want that for us. Because, listen, your pastor struggles with that. And so let me just show, tell you the this, this struggle that I go through and the silliness this is in my own life. So I'll just tell you my story, how Christ saved me, and show you how I've, what, what, what this looks like in my life. So I grew up my whole life. Um, no, my parents were not believers, didn't go to church, um, struggled through school. Man, my attention span is like two seconds. And if you don't interest in me in two seconds, like you're gone, right? And that's how I grew up. I mean, hard for me to focus in school. Um, I, my, my parents really couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. It took me forever to even learn the alphabet. Couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so, man, they took me to every child psychologist, child therapist they could ever find. And they were like, you have ADD, you have ADHD, you have ABCDFG. And I got every little alphabet number, letter, everything. They, they said, you have these issues. This is what you have. I mean, even, even early on, they were trying to figure this out. This is early 80s. So they didn't have all the phrases they have now and all the medicine they have now and all this stuff. And so what I, I was told, man, even by some, I mean, they would say, well, you're just special. That's really mean, by the way. Uh, it sounds like it could be nice, but special's not good, all right? I'm just saying. Um, and and what, what would even happen, even, I asked the lady, I saw a plaque in her office, and I said, do you think I'll even make it to college? I mean, you went to college, and she said, well, no, probably not, um, not based on what I'm seeing. That's really mean to a nine-year-old. But anyway, um, and they said, well, you're just more creative. You'll just be more creative. Oh, thank God, you know, go to art class and shut up, right? That's kind of the attitude I have. And so, man, it was just always told, man, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to make it. You're just, you're just a little bit different. You're just, you know, I went to summer school. My, mom, my parents were like, summer camp. And I get there, and it's not summer camp. It's summer school. And, um, you know, and kids there couldn't eat chocolate or they'd stab somebody, like that kind of school. And so, man, I'm, I'm there. I'm trying to figure out my whole life, man, what's, what is wrong with me? Uh, what's really wrong with me? And so my, my parents, I failed two grades, two grades, going through elementary and middle school, failed two grades. My parents were like, well, let's get him into a smaller school. So they just picked the Christian school because it was smaller. And they said, he'll get better education there. He'll, he'll learn more there. It'll help him out. Uh, he'll have one-on-one time with the teachers. And man, all of a sudden, man, I'm, I'm showing up. I'm in a chapel service. I've never even been, hardly even been to church. I'm in a chapel service. And this guy starts sharing the gospel. Now, this is a miracle from God that I even heard anything he would say because my attention span, again, was like nothing. But somehow I heard a 25 to 30 minute sermon and it was like the scales from my eyes opened up and the guy was actually talking directly to me and somehow God just closed out all the distractions, the Mario theme song and the contra up, up, down, down, left, right. It was all gone and I could hear 
him proclaim the good news of Jesus and what Christ has done for me. And if I didn't believe in him, man, my life wouldn't, it, it would be forever searching for something more. And man, I, I, that, I, that's the first time I ever heard it. First time I heard anything for 30 minutes, right? And so I responded and I gave my life to Christ, surrendered my life to Christ. Jesus, my life is yours. And after that, man, I, I began to see my life with a purpose and see my life for something different. And it's interesting, even throughout high school, I was still that guy, you know, failed two grades. You know, you're eighth grade, you're driving to school. Like, that's a little weird, right? You're, people bumming rides off you, right? You know, like, can you take me to the eighth grade dance? Yeah, I can take you. I got a car, right? You know, it's like a weirdest thing ever. And, and by the way, I was still the smallest kid in my class, even though I'd failed two grades, okay? Still weird, you know? I mean, man, listen, I could legally smoke in, in 10th grade, okay? I could legally smoke and vote. So, man, if I, could, if I wanted to smoke, I could be like, listen, you can't stop me. This ain't against the law, right? I could have that attitude if I really wanted to in 10th grade. And so, man, man, God saved me, though. God saved me. And so I worked really hard. I skipped a grade. I was actually, I wasn't 20. I was 19 when I graduated high school. But but you look at my story. Uh, You know, this had a lady tell me, you probably won't make it to college. I finished high school, finished college by the grace of God. And you look at my story, there ain't no way that you can look at me and say, man, Ben Tugwell's got it all together. If anything, you're going to be like, God is really good and he has a great sense of humor. That's what you'll say. (laughs) Wow, look at what God can do. Look at what God can do. And outside of that, I'm still a sinner that's been saved and redeemed by the cross. So I don't have anything to boast in, man. I stand up here telling you I ain't got nothing to boast in. But guess what? I still boast in myself all the time. I look at, you know, success. I might go and preach a good sermon every now and then and say, look, man, I, I did that junk, man. Look at me. Guess what? That's pride and arrogance. Nothing that comes out of Ben Tugwell is good. Anything that you see good come out of Ben Tugwell, it's the grace of God in my life. And guess what? The same goes for every single one of you in this room. We'll say, man, I'm not as dumb as you. Well, that's probably true. But listen, The education, the things that you've been given in your life have been given to you by the grace of God. The the resources that you have today have been given to you by the grace of God. You got a good career? Great. That career has been given to you by the grace of God. And we, all of us, are equal at the foot of the cross, sinners who need a Savior. And so, man, I I want you to see that this morning. If you don't see anything else, I want you to see that. What Christ has accomplished has nothing, nothing to do with credentials. Nothing. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. So what this does for me, when I embrace my humility, when I embrace my humiliation of what Christ has saved and redeemed me from, it makes me want to worship him more. It makes me thankful, God, you chose me You want to use me? It just blows my mind. And here's what else it does. It brings me to a point to where I want to serve him more. And if that means cleaning toilets for his glory, I'll do it. If that means hanging curtains for his glory, I'll do it. If that means straightening chairs for his glory, if it means preaching for his glory, I will do whatever I can to make much of him, which means there's nothing that I shouldn't be willing to do out of a grateful heart for how Jesus has saved me. And that's the attitude that we ought to have.
And if it, if it means you getting up early and helping the setup team, even though that's not the sexiest job and you won't get recognized as much as somebody else, that means you should do it. Because that's how Jesus serves us. That's what Jesus did when he got down on his, on his, knelt down on his knees and he washed all of the disciples' nasty feet. That's what he did. Just as Christ embraces his humiliation, so should we, as a response to what he's done for us. So man, God help us get there this morning. God help us get there. Let's pray.